This week on the podcast, I have an old friend, uh, Michaela Connery, joining us to talk a little bit about her work at the Kelsey. Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. Michaela, I have known of your work for a very long time. Uh, when you founded your first nonprofit, now on to your second, it's incredible, but you are the co-founder and CEO of the Kelsey, an amazing group building inclusive housing at scale, at scale in some of the toughest read San Francisco and down in San Jose, I believe, housing for, I think it's hundreds of people right now. Is that correct? That is correct. Amazing. Um, have- Can you tell us a bit about your work? Yeah, so um, good to be on, George, and uh, great to share the Kelsey's mission and what we're working on. Uh, So our mission is to pioneer disability-forward housing solutions with the belief that doing so um, opens doors to homes and opportunities for everyone. And so what began with a really personal and issue-specific passion around housing for people with disabilities um, both started with our co-founder and my cousin, Kelsey, um, and her own personal challenge finding housing in the community, as well as the issues that, um, you know, the millions of Americans with disabilities face in communities all over the country um, and finding housing that's affordable, accessible, and inclusive. Um, And so we started with that that need um, and recognized that building integrated community-based housing for people with disabilities and and meeting those needs um, just creates a better housing product um, for all people and all communities. Um, and to your point around doing so with a very, you know, there are 61 million Americans with disabilities. Um, so thinking about this issue at scale um, and thinking about how we influence change, not just for the 240 plus homes in our pipeline, but thinking about how that can expand out to serve millions of people nationally and, and even more millions globally is a, it's a joint impact um, and systems change strategy where we both build communities to meet immediate housing needs and demonstrate what works and then use that to inform systems level policy advocacy, community organizing and field building so that we can create the market conditions and remove the barriers in markets so that inclusive housing for people with and without disabilities becomes the norm. Um, And so we're on our way to doing that as a still relatively young but um, high impact to date uh, organization. Like I, I probably understood a good half of that. And this is why I reached out to you. I reached out to you also initially because of an article that came out and I just needed help understanding it. The article coming out in the San Francisco Chronicle talking about the $16 million that was spent on tents. The top line is like $61,000 per tent uh, per year. And I'm like, that's not housing. How is the city spending this much? on a tent that doesn't have running water, that doesn't have four strong walls. And, and here you're over there building, you know, hundreds of units. And I don't know, what was your reaction to that? How do you make sense of this for, for someone like me? Yeah. So I think my reaction to that is that um, our, uh, you know, as the public and, and our media is very quick to sort of, first of all, this solution was meant um, in defense of sort of the cost there. This was not meant to be a a permanent or 
um, you know, perfect solution. This was an emergency solution during a time of COVID where people were um, trying to figure out how to keep um, the unhoused community in San Francisco safe and healthy in the best way possible. Um, but I don't think, I, I doubt anybody would come out and say that this is the long-term solution. But I think sort of the public outcry around that cost, we have to hold public accountability to if you're complaining about the millions of dollars put into that tent community and you're not also advocating for permanent funding sources for and, and taxpayer subsidized funding sources for affordable permanent housing ground up development communities and or you're not advocating for the development and increased density or increased housing units down the block from where you live or in the neighborhood that you think is so cute where you like to walk and, and spend time in um, you can't you can't have have both parts of that so um, it's great to sort of say that these emergency solutions are not cost effective or even not you know, sort of long-term dignified and humane for the people who live there. And in the same vein, then you need to say, and what I think should be the solution is publicly financed, ground-up development, increased density um, in the city, in the neighborhood um, where I live and where I work and, and where I pay taxes. So um, we're always willing to spend money in sort of a reactive way often, um, and then easy to critique um, that spending. And what we need to be looking at is sort of proactive long-term solutions and, and solutions that leverage. I think one of the interesting pieces about that article is it brought up that that solution was not eligible for sort of federal partnership and federal reimbursement. And so thinking about solutions that, um, you know, how, how money is spent, but how a piece of money spent on a local level or at a foundation level also is used to unlock other dollars. Um, I think it's also was a, was a, was a sub note of that conversation, um, but something that is important and equally relevant as we think about affordable housing um, in the Bay area. Yeah. My, in my brain, I try to categorize things. I put this in the firm category of ounce of prevention versus pound of cure. Yep. The ounce yep. of prevention that you could be doing here really is, you know, tiny, but ultimately you find yourself in times of crisis, of stress, like a pandemic. But that was building for a long time. But the article needed to get headlines, and it did because it's alarming to look at how much a pound of cure costs, how much that actually is. And you know, to the larger point of like what people are actually paying for, like the other comparable program they were looking at was even more expensive, which is the hotel program. You know, the, the city spends 300 million thereabouts per year on the unhoused community and, and similar services. And it's, you know, it costs them 270, for instance, about 270 per night to put someone who is experiencing homelessness in a hotel. By the way, that's a hundred grand. That's a hundred grand a year. And guess what happens next year? No new house was built. Nothing, nothing in the realm of affordability. So I think, you know, it's, it's um, maybe frustrating because you get to look at how the community reacts and like all this like anger and rage. And like George reached out to me at this moment because he's like all fired up and confused as opposed to like, what about when that like that prop, whatever was going around? Uh, because in California, those of you who don't live here, we can vote on just about anything, you know, including not limited to the flavor of our vape pens that we want to allow. And then you end up seeing a lot of these maybe lost and forgotten bond measures or pieces in the municipal or city or state levels um, that we can vote on that would lead toward that ounce of prevention. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, things that you see right now or things that like, why did we not do this or that with regard to props? 
Yeah. So um, props and and measures, um, depending on whether we're talking sort of at the the city or county or um, state level um, that support. And, and I think going back to your hotel are a huge part of supporting solutions here. And I think going back to your um, hotel example and, and sort of getting, you know, paying sort of the per night cost to um, have somebody have a be housed and have a roof over their head, um, I think is looking at sort of one piece of the, the housing puzzle. And so we need to look at, you know, sort of sites and land and how and where housing gets built. We need to look at like dollars and cents and who pays for and and how and what the cost of that housing is and who's paying for that cost. And then we also do need, when we look at the cost of um, um, homelessness in, in a city like San Francisco and anywhere, we're also often talking about supportive services and therapeutic services and medical services and all types of other programming um, that isn't has nothing to do with sort of the physical um, space where a person lives. And so, you know, it's important to, and so it's really easy for people to just talk about the cost to develop housing or the cost per night of a, of a hotel room, but we really need to think holistically about those three pieces of the puzzle, sort of the where, the dollars and the and the services. Um, and so when, you know, when you look at if you're, you know, thinking about the the issue of homelessness in the Bay Area, you should be thinking about how you're saying yes to different measures and props that are providing funding for affordable housing um, where you live. Um, but it's really easy to have sticker shock and quick responses to you know, a uh, uh, one piece of that puzzle, um, but it's going to take us thinking, you know, across the whole supply chain of um, of affordable and and market rate housing. Those two pieces come together too. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of sticker shock, a lot of yeah <laughs> shocking information, and it's like it's it's shocking at a big number and at a little number um, because yeah. it, it's it's frustrating also to watch how small the I guess in this case the you know the cost per house. So the denominator is right. That the, the single human who got, got a tent versus like something that maybe could have been planned two, three years prior, something that was a bit more permanent. But then in this article, they also quote, which is just shocking, um, housing costs of $700,000 a unit. I got like, I watched like flip this house and shit. Like you can go and buy, <laughs> you can buy a house for half of that somewhere else. I like, what is going on? You know, like I'm in my mind, I'm like, gosh, move to Nevada or something like, why can't we get the cost down or what goes into this number? Yeah. So I think first let's talk about the, the move to Nevada question, which is like, I do think I want to, I want to be careful around that piece, which is that people talk about, and it's been an ongoing discussion, the disability community of like, it just costs too much to live or too much to build in the Bay area. And the solution is like, people just can't, you know, people need to look elsewhere. And, um, I think that's one, not the solution. We as as Bay Area, we want a, an income diverse community, but I also think, you know, we can't, uh, we've seen, it's interesting, The one of our um, service partners, the Golden Gate Regional Center, which is the, um, uh, the agency who provides support for people with developmental disabilities in San Francisco, Marin, and San Mateo counties, and their executive director often talks about that people have been priced out of their kind of catchment area because they can no longer afford to live there. And when they are priced out, 
guess what? Sure, they can find somewhere cheaper to live in the Central Valley, although now they're increasing their, they're having their own affordable housing um, crisis and and it's, it's sort of bleeding out. But also when we require people to live elsewhere because they can afford it, we're also requiring them to leave their natural and community support systems, whether that be the person who supports them in their home or their friends or their church or their family. And so we, we, that can't be our solution. Um, And I think the cost of housing, there's a lot of factors. We are um, underwriting two projects right now, one that will start construction at the end of this year in San Jose and one about a year behind in San Francisco. And it's just expensive to, to develop. The, what are the numbers on those? Can you just tease us with the, what can you share? Like, yeah, I mean, we're we're gonna come in at about what is average for the the region, which is somewhere between um, six hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars a door, um, and that is that is the reality of developing um, in the Bay Area, and particularly developing, you know, as we try to you know engineer costs, you know, you can do things like take out amenity spaces or take out accessibility features or value engineering certain sustainable materials. And that's, that's you're doing you know, 240 units. You said, yes, you're, so you're wielding upwards of $160 million right now. Well, I'm not wielding it personally, but um, yes, we are. We were, we will unlock that. And I think that's also another important piece here is what we wield is the philanthropic dollars that is sort of the first money in. So in both of those, both of our projects that are right around um, 65 to $75 million um, development projects, um, like I said, both around 101, 115, 112 homes in San Jose and San Francisco. And, and they're going to be, um, you know, upwards of um, 70, right around 70, $75 million uh, projects in total. Um, and we will be open sourcing our financials once those numbers are totally, um, once our financing closes, because that's part of our mission is to to be really transparent about how these projects get built and funded. So once the numbers are final and firm, we'll be sharing those um, with anybody who's interested in seeing them. Um, and to what we wield, I think that's also a really important part of this discussion is how we use philanthropic and private dollars to make these kinds of multi-million dollar, um, you know, several hundred home communities possible is that we use philanthropy on the early phase to de-risk and acquire sites that are value-add development opportunities. Then we bring in the public subsidy and the city partnership to take a huge chunk of the capital um, with public investment. Then we've got sort of the key pieces and go forward and unlock other state, federal, and philanthropic dollars to round out the capital stack. And so what we wield is, you know, yes, we have, you know, over 150 million in a housing development portfolio underway right now, and ultimately what um, what our projects will will cost, um, and that's made possible by you know about 15 million dollars in philanthropy, and so that's really where the Kelsey um, is is singularly focused right now is how do we raise philanthropic dollars um, so that an individual donor can put in a million dollars into a project to support affordable, inclusive housing, but their million dollars isn't just worth a million, it's actually worth 10 million um, because we're taking that million and we're lining it up with public subsidy and a permanent mortgage and tax credits and federal dollars um, to be able to um, to make these communities feasible overall. And, and I think that's when we talk about sort of a, we talk about cost per unit, but we should also be talking about value per dollar, which is like you put in your money, leverage, leverage matters a lot. And you put in your philanthropic dollars 
or a city puts in their public subsidy and how is that being used alongside other capital to to create more value and ultimately house more people in a better product. I think I love hearing you talk about the financial stack and making it open source. And I want to get back to that in a second, but I have to take my hat off and salute full on love. Anytime someone like yourself applies an abundance mindset versus gets trapped in a scarcity mindset. Someone who says, Oh my gosh, we have like $15 million in our backyard. And like, you could have just as easily put up the blinders and been like, all right, let's protect this and let's build 10 units over here (laughs) on the side because we can, we can control it. And it would be way too risky to then try to parlay that and and take that kind of risk and take that kind of, uh, you know, gamble for good. If we're being honest, right? Like you had to, you had to hold your breath and convince a lot of people that no, 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 we're going somewhere good. You know, I, I, I nod and I see this also in the health sector at times, I have to to point to groups like the Michael J. Fox foundation that do a similar bit of work where they de-risk. This is an important word especially when we talk to the financial folks, de-risk for pharma to work on uh, pharmaceutical research that helps advance Parkinson's and and research around Parkinson's disease and finding a cure there. In the same way that you were doing that here, you could have gone there again and been like, you know, we're going to take it. We're going to build one unit. But no, you're like, here's an intractable problem. You dropped it. It was like 60 million folks in our country um, fall into the category uh, of, of disabilities and how you solve that is not, you know, 10 units at a time. Let's be honest. You have a big freaking goal and yeah, (laughs) open sourcing a model like this makes a lot of sense. But I think what I, um, what I also love is that the, the advantage, it's like the strategic advantage is actually in the inclusivity itself because you Mm -hmm. open up the door to these other subsidies and can play it in. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of incredible. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about, designing that um, at, a, at a tangible level and, and making the case to like, all right, you got the foundation on board. Like, how do you get the next domino to fall? Yeah. Well, I think, to, you know, to pick up on the um, the abundance mindset um, versus a scarcity mindset, if you go on our website, that's actually one of our principles of advocacy and organizing too, because for, for two reasons, one is that when I first started research on this, so when I like I mentioned, I had a personal family connection, but I started this from kind of an academic, like what's the problem? Um, And it was looking at where the, you know, the existing projects were often disability only. um, And they were often sort of philanthropically or independently financed by a group of families or one foundation where they were building sort of six units or even 25 units at a time, but they weren't being done alongside public subsidy or or the the other um, even, you know, Uh, privately financed sort of affordable and market rate housing infrastructure. And so it was really important for me when I started this work of one, we don't want to segregate people with disabilities and every focus group we did with people with disabilities, they said they didn't want to be segregated. Um, So the, the sort of inclusive model was both what was kind of qualitatively right, but it was also to your point, quantitatively what made sense because by integrating housing for people with disabilities alongside, whether that be other affordable homes or other middle income or other market rate homes, it then opens these projects up to unlocking the public subsidy that is tied to those other housing unit types and making sure that disability funding doesn't sort of get hold away over there 
but it's used to kind of unlock and bring forward. And on a, if you do the calculation sort of on a per unit, what needs to be fundraised basis, you're getting a better bang for your buck in the philanthropic raise that, you know, we have in our San Jose project, we have 29 homes. If we just went and built those 29, 29 homes of the 115 for people with disabilities who use supportive services, we could have, to your point, exactly gone and just built those 29 homes with private financing, but it would have segregated and it also would have actually on what we had to raise um, been equal, if not more um, than what we're having to raise for doing it in this integrated sort of public private partnership model. And so that was really key. And I'd also say we think a lot about intersectionality and the scarcity mindset that I do fear that if we don't sort of think of um, the deepest affordability, which frankly, public sector partnership is required to go into the SSI you know, reliant lowest income people with disabilities, which is disproportionately black and brown people with disabilities, we have to look at an abundance mindset and have to recognize the diversity of disability needs and the role that the public and philanthropic sector plays um, to solve that and 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 not sort of create these um, very white and very affluent segregated models that that is just not kind of meeting the broadest definition of um, of disability inclusivity. Yeah, a, a narrative thread too in here is the service efficiency and community. And yep. coming back to my, you know, obviously like poor, poor thought, but I've heard it mentioned before of like, hey, there's tons of room in Las Vegas, right? Why don't you just build a giant tower out there out in the desert? And like, there you go. Your cost per units, you know, 30K and, and you're set. Put everybody on an island. And there's so many reasons <laughs> uh, not to do that. But also like, let's just bring it back to it economic arguments because you've had to make the economic argument and as soon as you walk out of the philanthropic rooms i know because i know you and your conversations you're like no, no no this makes financial sense it's going to cost you so much more to bring in the community necessary to serve this population that's going to put a huge price on this and not to be like that kind of ruthless and pragmatic but i feel like you've had to look at the freaking numbers involved here and be like look it's just better any way you slice it when you look at the whole person and the whole situation and the ounce of prevention and, and how you deal in the community. And I think it makes a stronger community in general. Um, and just, you know, I don't know if there's any other piece. I, I want to also touch on the fact uh, that, you know, you, you name yourself as a co-founder. And I, I also happen, you know, to know that, you know, you consider Kelsey um, uh, the other co-founder. And, uh, you know, I wonder how it's been championing a cause for which you personally, frankly, are, are not a constituent of, um, though you have obviously a, a close relationship. Uh, how do you, how do you navigate that when you're in the rooms that you're in? Yeah. Um, so I think, um, of, like I mentioned that, um, Kelsey, my cousin had multiple significant disabilities. Um, she actually passed away, um, right around the time that we got our first funding, um, uh, for the Kelsey. Um, and so, um, what, what started off as, as an organization that was really shaped by her has also become a legacy organization. And that's something I take really seriously and I'm, I'm really proud of. 
Um, but I think a lot about what it means to be a leader in allyship of saying that I consider myself an ally of the community of people with disabilities and of disability rights issues and recognize that I myself have not lived with a disability. I likely, um, as many of us will, I could live with a disability at another point in my later in my life. But right now, I, I have not had the experience of living with a disability or, or being a part of the disability community. Um, and I take that really seriously and what that means to be a leader and, and how I don't think it should be a requirement that no non-disabled individuals can lead disability rights-focused organizations or disability service um, efforts or inclusive housing development, um, as is the case in my what I'm doing. I think it would be it would be negative if no people without disabilities thought they could lead or be a part of solutions um, for people with and without disabilities. Um, but I think it really requires intentionality and in being co-led um, by people with and without disabilities. And so that, you know, has come through in my work, you know, in big and small ways that the first thing I did when I started thinking about what it would look like to build new solutions and housing for people with disabilities was go talk to people with disabilities um, and learn from the leaders of disability rights and service and advocacy organizations across the country and also be really willing, which I think leadership and ally leadership as an ally requires even more than any other leadership of being really open to criticism and challenging feedback. So, you know, when I first started this organization, I had disability rights advocates who changed my view on how um, I approached this from the very start and sort of made me rethink about, you know, services and housing models and how that would be delivered that directly shaped um, how the Kelsey has looked at our inclusion concierge and our um, on-site um, services model and, and think really intentionally from the feedback of disabled leaders. Um, we did focus groups where we centered people with disabilities and all different types of disabilities and their family members and other community members so that people with disabilities insights and feedback was embedded in our model from the start. Um, and then we thought about our organization leadership and how we are co-led again on our board and on our staff to ensure that we have people with disabilities um, represented um, and particularly increasing to think about also people of color with disabilities, which is which is exceptionally important and um, and something that we've also centered on. So taking that, you know, seriously and, and not being afraid also to name that, you know, I don't have a disability and there's a power dynamic and a privilege that comes with that and that I need to be conscious of and recognize um, every single day in this work. And that doesn't mean my leadership is less valuable or less credible. It just requires, um, you know, the attention to that and, and not pretending, um, that there's, that that's not something that creates a dynamic that needs to be constantly addressed and questioned and pushed forward. Um, and so, so I, I take that, that, uh, that job, um, and that responsibility and what I would say is a privilege, um, really seriously. What do you think the Kelsey is in 10 years? I think that there is a Kelsey community in every um, major market in the country, but that there are also Kelsey enabled models of housing that are not called the Kelsey and that don't, aren't run by or supported by the Kelsey directly, but that our advocacy on a systems level or our influence on sort of a field building level has created a whole ecosystem of disability forward inclusive housing options, which I hope and believe that the Kelsey will be 
the best in class, but we'll be the best in class of a very diverse market of disability inclusive housing. Um, and, and that's sort of our dream um, that we're still operating communities everywhere um, for anybody who wants to live in them, but that there are other people operating communities that have a lot of similar characteristics. And, and we're really proud of that, of, of sort of the, the groundswell um, of disability forward housing solutions that our, our model and our advocacy and our field building has made possible. I think this is just to come back to how unselfishly you care about what you're trying to achieve to open source your secret sauce of like, this is how you combine these financial models, these subsidies, these uh, city and municipal actors, like you're giving away the blueprint to coalesce competitors in many of the same ways that you watch like Elon Musk sort of like not really give a shit when he's like open sourcing a lot of the like lithium ion drivetrain designs for the Tesla. He's like, shit, we need electric cars. This is just where we need to be. I don't give a shit if I am the one who wins, but I know that I need to make a very viable stand to wake up. And we saw announcements this year of many car companies being like, by 20 some odd, it should have been 10 years ago. We're going to get to, and like each one had to capitulate. And so I think it is beautiful that you want to like field of competitors in 10 years rather than like winner take all. Um, yeah, no. I knew there was a reason I had you on this podcast. <laughs> How much money would that take? How much money would it take just to get, get you where you need to in 10 years? Like someone just write a check. <laughs> yeah. I think that if I, I think about this question a lot, that if we essentially, if we wanted to have, think about a Kelsey in every state across the country and we wanted to have a seed, like sort of a, what if we could do like a search fund um, for inclusive disability forward housing models where we could kind of do what we did in the Bay Area, that together we can do more community organizing and sort of open source groundswell kind of process and then pick a couple sites to develop. And we wanted like $10 million to seed that in every single state. I, I think we could like make a dent and move this, this issue permanently forward. Um, so yeah, if somebody would like to write us our, you know, $500 million check, I'd be very into us taking this nationwide within 10 years. You can no do problem. 500 all at once. You can do 10 per state as a rollout. Yeah. There's your number. Yeah. You know, 10, 10 will get you a hundred. Yeah. 10 will get you a hundred. <laughs> Come to the table. Exactly. I love it. All right. Uh, I could talk to you forever about a number of topics, but I'm excited to move into a rapid fire. Yes. All right. You've got 30 seconds ish to respond to the following. Uh, so I've shared those questions ahead of time. Hopefully you are ready. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Slack. I mean, love it. Oh boy. What tech issues are you currently battling with? Uh, well, we are definitely continuing to look at website and Zoom and other online Google Docs, um, Google Sheets uh, accessibility. So we obviously center on having disabled people um, with diverse access needs, both sensory and cognitive and, you know, people who are blind and people who are deaf. And so how to make all, especially in this virtual world, be fully accessible, whether that be our website or a Zoom meeting or our design standards work that we're doing with 600 design elements in an Excel spreadsheet of how to make those accessible to a, a diverse um, group of people with disabilities. Um, we have a long way to go, I think, in making our digital world fully accessible. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Uh, groundbreaking on our first project, um, which feels like a long time coming, but actually is in relative terms been very quick. But um, 
we uh, have our first project in San Jose where we'll put um, shovels in the ground um, at, by the end of 2021 tax credit pending. So um, I'm really excited. I'm about getting that. an invite to that. You right? will I for sure. For that? sure. Oh, goody. Can you talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now? Um, so I think, uh, uh, not, I think to your point around open sourcing of thinking that, you know, competition and you had to sort of hold your secret sauce and that, that, um, you know, you had to sort of two things, you had to sort of keep things, you know, internal until you really knew exactly how to do it. And you weren't sort of iterative and transparent and recognizing that being iterative and transparent early on allows one, your organization to really figure out what your value add in a broader system is. Um, and to, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats and to bring the whole sector forward. Um, I think in the social impact, social entrepreneurship space, especially through kind of the area that you and I met, George, where like the first question is always like, what makes you unique? And like, why are you like the best and only of what you do? And so I really internalized that as a young social entrepreneur early on, thinking that I had to be sort of the only and had to be different, which meant that I had to sort of protect ideas and and not let them out. Um, and I I uh, have really rejected that um, in, in phase two of just saying, Actually, if we are looking for impact at scale, transparency and collaboration and open sourcing is going to be required. And if you're really good at what you do, you can open source out the wazoo and you're still going to be the best at what you do. There's just going to be a lot of other really good people um, doing that as well. And, and that should be the goal. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Yes. <laughs> I feel like I knew that was coming. <laughs> If I were to throw you in a hot tub time machine back to the start of your work at the Kelsey, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, I would define um, roles because we work in collaboration a lot. I would um, be more intentional about upfront defining sort of roles and responsibilities um, and, and then being open that those might change over time. But I think we sort of built the plane as we flew, um, which is required for, for a startup. And so there definitely were some growing pains as, as it resulted in that, both on our internal team and also how we work with partners that that we still are, are working through. Um, and I think if I had, I, that would require me to have a time machine too, because I'd know where we'd be now. And I think we were still trying to figure out where we were going to be in a year. And so we couldn't define those roles and responsibilities right off the bat. But having clarity of sort of what your core competencies are, both at an individual staff level and at an organizational level, um, helps you, you know, drive impact and, and work better in partnership, um, especially as an organization that's so focused on, you know, development and operations partnerships. What is something that you think you or your organization should stop doing? Uh, well, sort of, I stopped doing it, but letting email sort of run your schedule and your priorities and run your life. And so I'm, I'm, that's a constant work in progress, but um, you know, not, not letting email be the dictator of attention and priorities. If you had a magical wand to wave across your industry, what would it do? It would make it rain. We would, uh, <laughs> he who has the gold makes the rules and we'd have a lot of gold and then we'd be able to make a lot of rules around uh, advancing disability inclusive housing. So um, we'd have cash. How did you get started in the social impact sector? Um, I got started uh, 
as a 15 year old, I started a club at my high school, um, around inclusive performing arts called unified theater. Um, that was a, a student run arts program for students with and without disabilities. Um, and that I did not know I was starting a social impact organization. I thought I was just starting a, a theater club. Um, and, uh, and everything grew from there. And I think that has been the singular orientation of my social entrepreneurship journey as I make air quotes, because I still sometimes struggle to call myself a social entrepreneur. I would call myself much more of kind of a, a social problems noticer where I really want to solve problems and I'm less interested around how, you know, built being the founder of an organization or starting something. I'm really, I see a problem and this seems like a solvable problem. So let's just do something about it. Um, and that was the case when I was 15 and probably will be the case for the rest of my life. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? Um, I would recognize that it is a career, um, and an industry, but it is not, um, and, and that there is vocation in any, a vocation is a vocation and whether that's, you know, because you're, you know, passionate about, uh, nursing or education or, you know, disability rights or military service or, you know, technology. Um, I think it's really important that we not pretend that working in the social sector is this like altruistic kind of, um, like do gooder field, but that it's, what is your vocation? What is the issue that you care deeply about? And then where can you have the most impact on it? And if that's the social sector and the nonprofit sector, great, but that also might be going and working, you know, for, Wells Fargo and making sure that their, you know, affordable housing lending is of inclusive projects or of affordable projects. And so I think it's really important to understand what is the issue area that you care about? And then what is the lever that you are uniquely called to push around that issue and not being so tied to what sector that's going to be, um, but being really tied to where you can then have the most impact of, of where those two things combine. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not. So this is funny because I've also said around what my magic wand would be of, of gold and money. But I will say that my parents always said um, that if the only item on the pros column was money, then it was a bad pro column. Um, and so I, I think that as, um, you know, I make both personal and professional decisions of obviously my work is we spent a lot of time talking about financial engineering, but um, that that on a more personal level, um, that um, you have to be financially um, sound, but that they're always it, it needs to always be more than just about about money. And both of my parents made um, mid career transitions. My dad went from being in hotel management to managing property and assets for the Catholic Church, and my mom went from being a mechanical engineer to a high school physics teacher. Um, and so, watching them make those transitions, where they were still able to provide for their family, but they ultimately thought about what what sort of uh, drove them to make the world a better place and, and supported a, a, a thriving life that they wanted to live. Um, that example, I think, has continued to um, resonate in, in my own life. All right, final hardball. How do people find you? How do people help you? 
Um, so you can find us online at thekelsey.org. Um, and there's a couple different ways people can help us. One is that if you live in um, the Bay Area and you're interested in actually getting involved in our projects um, on a community advisory group or on a capital campaign committee or helping do inclusion hours, um, sort of sweat equity, um, there's a lot of different ways that you can um, get engaged and, and contribute. Um, so you can find out how to contact us on our website. Um, we are always looking for financial supporters. Um, and whether that is, you know, our community that we call it, the community of monthly givers, who are people who give, you know, 30 bucks a month to support our mission that supports our ongoing operations or our developer and builder community where people who are giving 25,000 to million dollar to multi-million dollar multi-year pledges. Um, financial support is, is the, the secret sauce that allows us to get these projects done. Um, and, uh, and there's information about that on our, on our website. And then I think the last piece that people can do to support us is to just be advocates for inclusion in the different spaces um, where you live and operate. So, um, you know, whether that is saying yes to an affordable housing project down the street to from where you live or making sure that when your commute, your company or your brand or your foundation has a diversity strategy that has no mention of disability, which is remarkable to me, how often I get sent applications for things where it talks about, um, you know, centering on the most marginalized or including a lens of inclusion, but not mentioning disability. You can change that on a level where you live, work, and play of making sure that when we're talking about inclusion and when we're talking about, you know, policies that support the the multiply and most marginalized in our communities, that disability is one of the abundant, not scarcity, not one only, but one of many um, priorities that we're thinking about um, to create truly um, welcoming and thriving places for all people that that disability um, is is mentioned and thought about and intentionally included. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And I feel like I'm in the like the room with greatness and I can't wait to revisit this in 10 years and be like, well, she did it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, let's have let's have a follow up when that happens. So thanks for having us. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 